Well, welcome to all of you to our event uh, roundtable on migrant literature. And uh, let me let me do a couple of things that if I don't do them now, I will forget uh, before we get rolling. So after this event, there will be an opportunity to to buy books. Um, you know, just outside there in the lobby, um, and. Um, then another thing I would like to acknowledge here is the support of the Dutch um, Embassy and um, as well as the Migration Studies Unit, the Forum for European Philosophy, Polish Pangana Publishers and Portobello Publishers. And uh, now you might you might ask yourself, you know, an event on the round table of migrant literature at, at the LSE. Um, what kind of team together? You know, think of the LSE, you know, the pounds and the dollars and the euros, right? And, you know, how do you bring things together? Well, the interesting thing is that if you look at the new pound sign here, that's the man, all right? That's Adam Smith right there. The division of labor in manufacturing. <laughs> now, you know, you say that's not going to get you any closer, right? I mean, you have this idea that if you wanted to make pins, then uh, it was better to put 20 people in an assembly line than have 20 lone workers, right? I mean, the whole division of labor idea. But Adam Smith had a lot of interesting things to say in the theory of moral sentiments in, in 17, you know, written in, in 1790 or sixth edition in 1790. And, you know, the question that he's interested in is, you know, what is it that makes it possible to form a polity? Okay? And, Interestingly enough, he says, this, it's no problem at all. He says that people have different philosophies. It's no problem at all that people have different tastes and so on. Let's look at the man's words here. Though you despise that picture or that poem or even that system of philosophy, which I admire, there is little danger of our quarreling upon that account. I can easily overlook this opposition, and if I have any degree of temper, I may still find some entertainment in your conversation, even upon those very subjects. That's no problem. Different philosophy, different tastes, no problem. But this, he says, is a problem. But if you have either no fellow feeling for the misfortunes that I have met with, or none that bears any proportion to the grief that distracts me, or you have either no indignation at the injuries that I have suffered, or none that bears any proportion to the resentment that transports me. We can no longer converse upon these subjects. We become intolerable to one another. I can neither support your company nor you mine. You are confounded at my violence and passion, and I am enraged at your cold sensibility and want of feeling. Beautiful, right? So the spectator must, first of all, endeavor as much as he can to put himself in the situation of the other, to bring home to himself every little circumstance of distress which can possibly occur to the sufferer. He must adopt the whole case of his companion with all its minutest incidents and strive to render as perfect as possible that imaginary change of situation upon which his sympathy is founded. Now, I think that this is really interesting because I think that that's really what migrant literature does for us. That is, it enables us to understand the emotional responses that, that migrants have to situations. And then, you know, that kind of understanding is precisely what we need to acquire um, 
and we need to be able to put ourselves in the other person's shoes. And if modern literature is done well, it precisely gives us sort of the minutest incidents of the migrant experience. You know, and that makes it then possible to form a polity. At least that's what you know my reading of migrant literature does for me. So I was thinking, you know, instead of roundtable of migrant literature, we could have called this Adam Smith's legacy in our time. And here's the man, and there are three authors, right? So <laughs> anyway, so I thought we would progress in the following way. Um, Stephanie van Gemert, who is a literature student, PhD student at the Center for Intercultural Studies, will introduce the, the authors. And then we have asked the authors to prepare a little piece uh, of their work. So, you know, they'll do a short, a short read of their work. And then we'll just you know, do a few questions, open it up to the audience, and so on. Um, and, uh, so, Stephanie, I'm handing it over to you. Thank you. Um, well, I wrote all these nice intros. Born in 1973, moved to from here to there. Um, but I do think like, these authors can speak for themselves. And um, I read in an interview, Kapka, you you struggle with the question, where are you from? And I think you coined a very good answer by calling yourself an Eastern European anthropologist. <laughs> um, I dare you, like, I challenge you. Where are you from? I'm sure it's uh, <laughs> uh, a lot of people here, not just the three of us, but uh, the rest of you will probably find that. Hmm? It's, <laughs> it's a great, great representative audience, but I'm sure some of you have had to um, face up to that um, lovely question that polite people always ask. So where are you from? Um, and you know, I wish we lived in a world, we almost do now, but not quite yet, where you could just say, I'm a mongrel, you know, um, and not have to explain four generations back where you come from. Um, and I consider myself a, a mongrel, a cultural mongrel, a hybrid. Um, and we were talking a little bit about this before with Nahima, that it seems that we are all familiar with the concept of the migrant and migrant literature and migrant communities, um, but I think there's a new generation of, of us, um, you know, mongrels and hybrids, people who are not necessarily part of, of a migrant community. Um, I'm Bulgarian, ethnically I'm Bulgarian, um, in terms of my blood, <laughs> I'm Bulgarian. But I left Bulgaria when I was 16. I moved to Britain and then New Zealand where I spent 12 years. Um, I hold a New Zealand passport, so at least on paper I'm a Kiwi. Um, you know, this is a Maori mask with a moko, the traditional Maori tattoo. Um, and now I live in Scotland, so where the hell am I from? Um, that's why I, I would like to say in an ideal globalized world, globalized in the best sense of that word, I would like to say I'm a mongrel. I know you got the Elvisual Stimulation Prize yeah. um, in Holland, which is a Dutch prize, and Mustafa is from Belgium. It's also a prize for um, writers with Arabian descent, and you're yeah. from Turkey, you're Asian. Um, yeah. I um, think that shows a bit of confusion. Could you introduce yeah. yourself to the company? <laughs> okay. Well, it's a difficult story, as Kapka told. I'm from Belgium, I live in Belgium, and I live in a small village where you have people who never left their own village. 
been there for 80 years now. And in Belgium, most of you guys know probably, it's very loaded if you are Flemish or Wallonian. Uh, if you're on the Flemish side of the border or the Wallonian bo side of the border. And between all that, there's also this country, uh, country such Limburg, where I live, where the majority of the country, of the land, makes jokes of because we are the, f the presence, we talk very slowly. Besides that, I'm an immigrant from Turkey who has a who has a disability. I mean, how many, how much more minority could you could you get? <laughs> so, as an extra to couple, I, I don't know anymore what I am because I don't think there are so many connotations in a in a fondale, which is the greatest dictionary in, in Holland and Belgium. I've looked it up, what it means to be allochtone, which is the, the Netherlands, the, the Dutch word for immigrant. I mean, you could be from Brussels, you could be Flemish, you could be Flemish-speaking Brussels, you could be a Turkish Flemish-speaking Brussels in, in Belgium. I mean, I don't know anymore what I am, I'm just Mustafa and I, and I arrived, that's it. Is that uh, enough for, for an answer? Well, I think these two have confused the audience much, so I'm just going to be kind to you and give you a factual um, representation of, of who I am, otherwise I'll be confused. Um, okay. I was born in 1970, don't calculate, um, <laughs> in Slough, that's near to London. Um, that's why I always have to explain to my Dutch people, Dutch friends, because I live in Holland. Okay, again, 1970, I was born in Slough. When I was a few months old, my parents sent me back to Pakistan because they were probably afraid that I, as a baby, might become too Western or something. Um, I lived in Pakistan for nearly three years, returned back to England, met my dad for the first time because he stayed back in England. At the age of nine, um, we moved to the Netherlands because my dad was looking for a country which had no colonial um, association with Pakistan, so that was Holland. Um, it's the truth, actually. I, I, can't, I can't even put it in fiction because people won't believe me that that's the reason why he migrated to Holland. At the age of 13, um, we were all sent, we children were all sent uh, back to Pakistan. We were six children, and the fear was again that we might become too Western. Um, at the age of 15, we came back to the Netherlands. So um, I migrated five times uh, before the age of 15. And um, sometimes I give lectures on migration to immigrants in Holland who complain about them having a backlog and you know, feeling not at home and um, suffering from their migration. I just say, well, how migrated can you get? You know, to use the jargon he just used, how minority can you get? you migrated five times. Um, so that's, that's in a nutshell the migration uh, history. But I think um, in, in my case, when you um, are an immigrant in England uh, from a Pakistani background, you belong to a dominant group of migrants. When you move to uh, the Netherlands where there are only 13,000 Pakistani uh, people, people with Pakistani background officially, uh, there's 25,000 um, illegals so to speak, um, you become a minority 
within um, other minorities, a larger group of um, uh, immigrants in Holland are from Moroccan and Turkish origin. So that also gives you a different perspective on, um, on your status as, uh, as immigrant. I'm a writer, I write about this topic, um, but I'm also a lawyer, a human rights lawyer, which also gives a certain way of looking at, um, at writing. Um, I started writing at the age of um, 32, um, but having practiced um, eight years of law, so um, I don't always feel fully writer like, like these people. They look like writers. Um, Thanks. I try. I try. Um, so, um, Can you explain that? <laughs> well, sure my, my hair looks nicer, I think, than yours. So. Um, you know, it's all these questions. You always, I, I think I always have this feeling of, um, um, you know, looking at myself as out of place, but it's my comedy and my tragedy. And I'm quoting oh, Rushdie, man. who said that. You know, so being immigrant is comedy <laughs> and tragedy. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I'll, uh, I, I'll keep it to that for the moment. Thanks. Um, when I asked you, you said that to read your, um, to read your, your just right. translated I'm the minority it's, between... Um, it's an extract from the Lama, which means the lambs. Can I go in the middle with yeah? Mm. Yeah. <coughs> so I'm just going to kick it off, all right? Can you guys see me within the light, or is it distorted? Can you? Yeah? No, I would like to have you. Yeah? I'm disabled enough. By evening fall, Özgür comes to pick me up. When we're driving the car, we are two good-looking, fresh-smelling young men. We're cool as we drive away. We start the small talks, work, weather, and so. When we arrive at the wet cobblestone road, suddenly there's no more talk. Like a child, I stare outside. Life passes by. My compagnon de route leaves me with my thoughts. In silence he smokes. It is as if he knows. I come down with the psychedelic beats of DJ Kenny Hawks play the game. My eyes observe the street. People running. The continuous rain. Huge neon lights. Steamy snack bar windows. Empty buses. And the flickering light of an airplane. No star in sight. Özgür parks behind the Martinique. A couple, stumbling and slurring, leaves the joint. In contrast with the drunk duo, we enter the exotic bar in style. Shadows of white candles dance on the walls. There are sounds of catchy Latin American music and vulgar laughs of ladies with over-the-top high-heeled shoes. If there was one, if there was any, if there ever was one, my mood is completely gone. I'm not interested. I think of Aisha. None of all the ladies come close to her grace. Somewhere a hand goes up in the air. Yusuf waves at us. The company of my friends is a balm on my wounds. Even though some wounds don't heal, ever. Can't do anything about it. Not in control. My brother killed himself in the spring of 94. Maybox swung out. Poppies were blooming in the fields. 
but the lifeless body of my brother hanging on a rope was beyond imagination. He brought you over to our motherland to bury your next grandfather. Flowers in my hands, white tulips, there were three of them. Slowly I laid them by your side, one for you, one for me, and one for the family. Silence around me, only sniffling. Quran versus sun, the Imam preached, didn't care much, kept wondering why. And what about brother of forever then? Slowly your body, wrapped in the finest linen, lowered down into the ground. It hurt me massively. I had to cry harder and harder each time. A dagger cut in my throat. I buried you with a torn heart. I sank onto the, I sank on the dry ground and with my head in my hands I unleashed deep screams of sorrow towards heaven. My voice must have echoed in the mountains. I couldn't believe it. Suddenly you disappeared down into the dust. My only brother was no longer. Felt lonely and alone in the world. I stayed behind, empty. And the only thing I could think of was your beautiful smile. I miss you, brother. There you go. very short I just enjoyed it so much I read a very short excerpt from um, um, the first part of this book Street Without a Name um, which really is a book about the last what I call the last childhood of the Cold War it was the childhood of our generation um, it, it isn't obviously just my childhood um, it is a collective that last collective childhood in the 70s and 80s um, and in this short um, excerpt that I'm going to read, um, I'll take you back to right to the end of the Cold War. Some of you may not remember it. <laughs> it was 1989, remember? Those of you who do. <laughs> so we are now in 1989 when the Berlin Wall fell. And to some of us, especially those of us in Bulgaria where things were quite entrenched and perestroika and glasnost existed, but somehow people of my parents' generation thought that the Cold War would never end. It was a big shock when it ended. This chapter is called And Heaven Knows I'm Miserable Now, and this is when I first arrived in England in 1989-1990. Before we knew what had hit us, my father found himself on a two-year university fellowship in a place called Colchester. Soon, my mother and sister followed, while I stayed behind in Sofia, to finish my year at the French College. Now, Colchester was in England, which was inconvenient because my French would be of no use. But England was where the Beatles were from, and I had best of the Beatles to help me. I applied myself to deciphering with the dictionary the lyrics of And I Love Her in my life, and the more problematic yesterday, which drove me to floods of tears every time. Yesterday, all my troubles were so far away. Now, the Berlin Wall was down. My family were in England. I was 16 and probably the last virgin at the French college. And I had to learn a language that was full of phrasal verbs like 
turn up and turn in. That made no sense. When I arrived in Colchester in the summer of 1990, hyperventilating with excitement, I looked like an impersonation of Madonna in her Like a Virgin video clip from 1984, which of course I hadn't seen. Clad in a leather miniskirt made by, my, made by my mother and a leather jacket sourced by my grandfather from the leather factory where he was an accountant, I wore an enormous coiffure of gelled hair atop a blurry face exploding with lipstick and hormones. To my amazement, Nobody in Colchester looked like this. <laughs> this was confusing. Wasn't this the West? They could wear anything they wanted. Why didn't they? My younger sister was already speaking English with the local Essex accent, eight o'clock for eight o'clock. This sounded very different from the Beatles. In fact, I understood almost nothing except the endless thank you, please, and sorry that the polite people of Colchester specialized in. My sister, 11, was already writing mini-essays in English. Her latest homework was, write about your house. She did. The teacher very nicely corrected her English. Your parents' bedroom can't be in the living room, she said. A bedroom is where we sleep. We don't sleep in the living room. But my parents do, my sister said. And when my grandmother comes to visit, she sleeps in the kitchen. <laughs> Soon I realized that the polite people of Colchester didn't know where or even what Bulgaria was. This was confirmed by a multi-choice quiz in a tabloid paper where I found the following. Bulgaria is A, a character in a children's story, B, a Soviet Republic, C, a country in Southeast Europe, D, a wild river in Mexico. Meanwhile, my sister was befriended at her school by a little boy from Cameroon. They were the only foreign kids at an all-white, all-English school, which explained why nobody else wanted to befriend them. One day, the boy said to my sister, Asya, I really like you. My sister, gripped with nameless feelings, spat back, and I hate you, and ran away in tears. What she really meant to say, but couldn't, was that she was lonely and that she didn't want to feel like a freak from a country that nobody could find on the map, just like him. Thank you. is about an immigrant girl in London who has parents. Um, her father wants to return back to Pakistan, so he lives in the past and has created this imaginary homeland, and her mother wants to live in the future. She always thinks that, you know, if tomorrow comes, everything will be better. She'll put up this big business and become successful. But Dina, the girl in, in the book, she wants to live in the present but everyone in her family around her lives either in the past or in the future. So she feels lonely in, in the present. So I called it Lonelinesses, and it's based on a title of a, of a Pakistani drama, Tanhaiya, for those who, who know that drama. Um, and this is a piece where she um, enters into the garden, and she, she actually wants to become a tree or a plant, because um, plants don't move. 
and it's based on one of the quotes of a very nice uh, book, a philosophy book, um, a fairy tale for, eld, uh, for older people, for, for not children, but for um, adults, not older people, adults, um, called um, Le Petit Prince, uh, The Small Prince, uh, from Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. And one of the quotes in that book says, people, they have no roots, and that troubles them much. Okay, I'm going to read out... Um, the London dawn embraced me, and I drank the dewy air, my first morning kiss. It was quite cold and quite dark in the garden. As I made my way over the grass, wet clay moistened the pads of my naked toes. It felt slimy and sludgy, but soothing too, and soft. I pressed my feet deeper into the squelching bronzy black earth, steering a course for the barest patch of lawn where I knelt. Unthinkingly, I snatched up a clod of mud, eyeing it the way you eye the lips of a lover, and carefully ran it along my own lower lip, the tip of my tongue, all over my mouth. My roots, I sighed. How I long for you. And I smeared that clod onto my cheeks, my chin, my forehead, yearning to belong to that soil. I knew I could belong to that soil. In truth, we could all belong to the soil. All of us who so loved to call the world our home. All of us who left and pretended we'd never arrived. All of us migrants with a capital M. If only we'd choose to fill our lungs with the same precious air we breathed in our long lost paradise. If only we'd put down roots deep down into the soil that had already accepted us, though we offered her nothing in return. We eternal travelers of the world were proud and veiled ourselves protectively with distance. We were held back by the pangs of our guilt which kept us from calling this land our home, learning to love her. Guilt and shame were our pesticide, the poison stunting even shriveling our roots until we hurt. We wanted pain. We wanted our new lives to hurt. Only pain could overpower the shame and guilt of abandoning our remembered homes. So we never arrived, we never took root, we suffered, we cried our homesick tears, we relived our lost pasts till they crowded out our presence, till they sapped our passion for settling in this new home, scared as we were of unsettling the old. But I had no old home, no old country. The only home I had was this, this place I called mine. I sighed again, crouched in the bed of clay in the dark and lonely garden. I groped for mud and more mud, cloddish clumps of London mud. I smeared them onto my body, lathered my skin as if I were cleansing it. Sacred London soil, I love you. Let me be yours. Take me, I whispered. And as I caressed her glistening slopes, cautiously kissing her dusky grains, I felt myself becoming one with the soil. I was fusing with her, sliding back and forth, shining as she shone. I smelled like her musk, and surely she smelled like me. I adored her, and hoped, in that moment of soul-sweet surrender, she loved me. Thank you. Thank you. That, was, that was wonderful. But let me open up with a, with a first question. Um, C.S. Lewis says somewhere that we read to know that we're not alone. And 
Bernard Walzer, a German uh, writer, actually adds to that, and that's also why we write. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I'm wondering, actually, you know, what is it that, that drives your writing? You know, what is that motivates you? You talk a lot about the fame in, in, in coming to a new country and so on. You must have a particular audience in mind that you want to connect to. So um, I'm going to leave it free for all here and just jump in. Ladies. Ladies, can I can I take it sure. on? I, I don't want to take the floor because I just yeah. You know, let me just take the floor. Okay. Um, you know when when you just said that quote, I remembered um, a passage from the first migrant book I read. Although I don't like the term migrant book, but we can come to that later on. Um, and that was um, uh, the Buddha of Suburbia. I think many people have read that from Hanif Qureshi. And there was one passage which actually brought me to tears. And I only cried with two books. And this was the second book. The first book was, was Wild Swans. Um, but in, in Hanif Qureshi's book, um, I cried because the character Kareem went to his aunt and she made chapatis for him. And he was eating chapatis. And that was the first time I read in an English book um, the word chapati. And I felt recognized. And you know, the difference between you and me is that I was brought up by chapatis. And you were probably brought up by cornflakes or something. And um, <laughs> I that always read. <laughs> <laughs> and I had always read about cornflakes for breakfast, whereas I, I, brought, I was brought up with chapatis and pratas for breakfast. And it's nice yeah. to see that recognition. So for me, he, he meant recognition. And um, I write to recognize myself. And then, you know, I don't have the arrogance that I want to be recognized by others, but readers do come to me and say, well, you know, I, I recognize so much in your books. So I think we write to be known and for the other person, uh, the other person, that, that person also gets known. And you see the differences and subtleties. We write to really capture subtleties which are otherwise lost in, in abstractions. That's... Uh, couldn't, I couldn't put it better. I know. <laughs> let me add try. <laughs> Do try. <laughs> let me start by using someone else's words and add to your excellent collection of quotes. Paul Gauguin, the French painter, yeah. um, was once asked why he painted. And um, uh, the, this is actually from his diaries um, from French Polynesia, where he lived and died. And um, um, I will always remember this phrase, life being what it is, one dreams of revenge. <laughs> Let me rephrase this. <laughs> I think we, we all write out of some kind of fundamental sense of grief and loss. And I think that's what Paul Gauguin meant when he said revenge. It's because we know we live in an unjust world. And I think any art, particularly writing because it articulates, um, any art strives to somehow redress in its own small, tiny way, um, that injustice. And I think what you said about validation is, is very true, that in a way producing um, art, producing a book is a way of validating an experience which is, of course, not only your experience but some kind of communal, collective experience. So there is catharsis in this, um, this sort of validation. and. In, for this particular book, Street Without a Name, I think the reason why I wrote it was because I wanted to talk to the child that I was during the Cold War. I wanted to re-establish a connection with my 
with my childhood, to revisit my childhood. And I literally went to Bulgaria and I traveled for two months and it was a journey back in time as well as in space. So that was the prime motivation for writing this book. I wanted to find out who I was, who we were, the last children of the Cold War. And this is what this book is about. And a lot of readers email me every day, East European readers in their hundreds. I'm just overwhelmed by the response from East European readers who write to me and say, it's as if I have written this book. It's my story. And perhaps yeah. that's what validation is. Um, Hmm. Otherwise, there would be no point in writing. <laughs> yeah. I like that revenge metaphor, actually. I mean, there's sort of the idea that, you know, the suffering seems so meaningless and it kind of cuts you off from the world. And then you kind of want to get back at it by making it meaningful. Uh -huh. right? and, and that's what the process of writing can do for you. So, so you see, get the upper hand at the, at the end, right? Mm. I, mean, I think that's kind of the revenge mm. feeling. Otherwise, what's the point of suffering? Right. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I don't know how I'm going to top the explanation of the, these guys, but of course, besides the fact suffering, there is talent, you want to be heard, you want to make your voice heard. But I, it was yesterday, I think I told Naima that when you're happy, when you're, when you're a happy writer, you don't have anything to tell, which is meaningful. In other words, art or literature, for me, exists because of misery. And if you put it in my world, then, then misery. I had, I had, fifteen years of contemplation of after die of after losing a brother who killed himself, which was very autobiographical, as I read earlier. When you have hidden rock bottom and you have all the time when you have ages and see oceans of time to think of what is it now that you want to do man with this life with these legs that they, that, 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 that won't move anymore what are you going to do where you can find a little bit joy back again so you won't think I don't need this anymore and then this magical place which is called writing being a novelist, being, a, being somebody who's called a city poet, that, that blossomed like a beautiful flower one day to me and that was the day that I realized I want to write because that makes me live again. I don't know, I'm trying to answer the question why did I write? I don't know for 100% sure what the answer to that is but to me I don't think there is anything else which gives me so much more joy besides my Ashkim, my, my lovely fiancé, which is also here. And I'm going to keep it by that. Orhan Pamuk, the Nobel yeah. Prize winner and yeah. writer, yeah. said in his Nobel in his, speech... In his Nobel speech and in his little book where he says the, the coffer... Uh, the, suitcase. the suitcase. The suitcase of my father and he has this almost two pages long explanation of what it is to be a writer and I think you cannot pinpoint any better what is it to be a writer and why do you write and you guys really should read it.
One of the things he says is, I write because, it's like, I write because, I write because, and it's two pages. But one of the things he says is, I write because nothing else makes me happy. Yes, I write because I'm mad at you guys. I write because I want you to, I want to hurt you guys. I want to shake you up. I want to stir the world. I want to, I want to do so many things, you know, be, be alive, uh, be, be heard, be, be around Tomok. I, I write because I like to be written. Uh, to, to be read, right. I like to. I write to because I like the fact that people recognize me and said, "I I know you." He's also very honest about it. Hmm. Yeah. Now, Mustafa, you won an integration prize yesterday. Yesterday. congratulations. You've been working on human rights, um, Kafka, that's sort of the post-communist perspective in a way. I mean, there's so much political going on too. Um, how do you see you, you working as a as a political player, um, as a part in the political game? Yeah, let's start with you. <laughs> well, for starters, I'm the first immigrant novelist in Belgium. Can you believe that? We're in 2009. <laughs> really, honest. I was the first novelist in Belgium who is from a non-originally Flemish or not Belgian origin. So that's a that's like a, a sign on the wall, like what it what it is to be, what kind of society you have there. And when you compare like the Netherlands or, or UK, where you have already a tradition of, I think, two decades of uh, immigrant uh, writers, I think it was. Let me resume it in this phrase. I think it was from Atatürk. If you wanna, if you wanna see the core of a society, of a community, if you want to feel the soul of people, then look at their minorities. Mm -hmm. Minorities, disabled people, their elderly and their artists. Then you will have an idea of what kind of people you're dealing with. I mean, I don't want to be too rough or too, too critic on Belgium or any other country, but that's really a, a sign on the wall if you are in 2007 my book was published there compared to Netherlands which is like I live on the borders 15 minutes drive in Netherlands we speak the same language we, are, we have almost the same tradition in, in Western literature and stuff there has been published there has been publishing by immigrants and Moroccans and 15 years ago 15 years before me and in that way what my political role in this whole thing is, I think it's a good thing that I started the whole chain, but I don't want to be a uh, first star and the, the, the first uh, the train, the locomotive, the, the head of something. I mean, it's nice that I influence people and that they will say, oh, if you can do it, I want to try it. I want to give it a try as well, because the main thought of immigrants or, or, or exotic people are I'm not, a, I'm not, I'm not making any chance because you know I have so many uh, disadvantages I don't speak very well the language uh, I have a color uh, I will be discriminated and stuff like that but in my in my example you can't be minority than me really I'm disabled I'm from a very very uh, 
countryside side, uh, place in the country where the, the majority monks monks with us are. They have this train. Uh, they, they're not even part of Belgium, and they are strange people. I'm, in, I'm immigrants. I'm disabled. The only thing, if I also were gay, then, <laughs> then I was like, then they should have given me a prize of, oh, you poor thing. <laughs> Let's give him a prize on something. <laughs> I mean, so there's hope for you guys. You can publish. If I can do it, you definitely will. <laughs> and that way, and it makes me happy because you, you, the expectations were really high. Like one of the progressive uh, journals in Belgium were like Belgium's first no, no first expect no Belgium's finally Belgium's first exotic rider. So like <laughs> <laughs> I was like a, a new Messiah. GSM that I was going to launch. You know, there it is, a new thing. And then I was like, what are we doing? I'm just writing a novel, please. <laughs> therefore, I mean, I'm happy the way it went and that I did it because now they will go like, oh, if Mustafa published, we will all definitely publish. <laughs> I think Mustafa shouldn't be so sad about, uh, about your background because yesterday we had dinner. It just struck me that Mustafa has this face that if you would cast him for a, for a play, you would cast him as Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's his, his success ticket. Um, <laughs> I want to second the thing. I'll just sure. answer the question now. <laughs> um, I'd like to tell an anecdote. Um, when Are you I, to divorce me? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's my turn now. <laughs> um, I, when I started writing uh, a few years ago and I left the legal field, um, I had this naive idea that uh, my books, uh, which were colored by, my, um, uh, by the topic of human rights and human rights of immigrant women, human rights of women in general, coming from very traditional um, cultures. And um, I, I thought that my writing, my novels, my, my books would be entertainment. It would be larbular, you know, it would just be for the literature's sake. And um, my um, second book, which was, um, it was an erotic novel about three Pakistani women who had sexual strategies to gain more power towards men. Um, and I thought that's going to just entertain people. And it did, but it also became a very uh, big discussion in the Netherlands. People, you know, the media started inviting me to speak about the suppression of Muslim women in sexual matters. Um, and I learned from that episode that literature or any art is not just entertainment. Art is also a particular type of truth. It's not a scientific truth, it's not um, a religious truth, but it's, it's literary truth. We capture emotions and we capture feelings and we capture the human condition like no other, um, uh, no other field can do. And because of this reason, I think it does have an effect on, uh, on policies and on uh, politics. And that is um, in, in, in this way. In, in, the, in the Netherlands, um, the immigrant uh, a population of, of 
and that immigrant populations um, gain success sometimes through religious activities. A lot of um, uh, Muslims organize themselves through Muslim organizations and get subsidies from the government and are therefore powerful organizations. And they have a certain way of giving themselves profile in society. And I think if writers will pop up from those immigrant communities and give profile, a diverse profile to that community, they will actually form a sort of um, conscience of that community and they will um, give a, a variety of, um, of base. And that does have an effect on how policy is made. We, again, as I just said, we, we depart from big abstractions. What is an immigrant community if we write? So yes, it does have a political consequence. It's naive to think it's only entertainment. Mm -hmm. yeah. okay. I want to just say something very briefly about... Um, well, first of, all, first of all, about Street Without a Name, which clearly has politics in it, because it's about the end of the Cold War, and also what happens to places like Bulgaria in the wake of the Cold War. Um, it's a political book that doesn't wear its politics on its sleeve, because it's a very domestic tale of ordinary life under communism, and of an ordinary country where extraordinary things have happened. So yes, it's, it's political, inevitably. But um, what interests me um, beyond that is um, what I would call the politics of hybridization. Um, we all know about immigrant communities and the politics of, of um, immigrant communities um, and so on, especially in a country like Britain. Um, what I find more interesting and more difficult, and we all joked about this when we were talking about where you come from, mm. is the hybrid. Uh, you know, the hybrid is on the rise. People like us who are, come from A to B and then move to C mm -hmm. and then marry someone from D. Um, you know, um, we don't belong necessarily to a migrant community. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't go to church or to the mosque once a week. Um, we have to define ourselves in a new way. And this is also a political um, issue in a much more um, individualistic, personal um, way, I feel, um, that this hybridization of literature as well that, that we see. It's not just migrant literature, and you, you, you said, Naima, that you have a problem with that term. I have a problem with that term too. I don't see myself as a migrant writer. Mm -hmm. I see myself as a writer for, for those who travel, for the dispossessed, <laughs> um, for people who um, live across cultures or among cultures, not even between anymore, among cultures. Um, and that in itself is, is a political thing and even in my poetry and poetry you could argue should be removed from politics but my latest poetry collection is called Geography for the Lost and every single poem um, speaks from the perspective of someone who is displaced not necessarily in the migrant sort of way but displaced in whatever way um, and we have all felt displaced at some point in our lives mm -hmm. And I think this, you know, there is something political about this, um, which will be more and more, I think, um, I don't know, we'll find more and more outlets in literature uh, in our generation and maybe the generation of our children, mm -hmm. the future generation of writers. Well, I think it will fade away as well. Really? It's, yeah, you can see that the, the theater resembles that it will fade away, that the word migrant will be no longer there anymore in 50 years because mm -hmm. it's a fact that the multicultural worlds are there right now mm -hmm. and you would be ignorant if you would 
actually there's this guy in Belgium, Kung van Mechelen, you've probably heard of him, he does this thing with chickens. <laughs> really? Uh, no, it's, it's, yeah. it sounds funny, but it's, uh, he, he really was, he was ex uh, invited at, at uh, the royalty, at the, the, the king in Belgium, because he was doing so uh, progressive things with breathing with all kinds of types of sorts of chickens throughout the whole world, so he made a uber chicken. <laughs> sounds sinister. Yeah, it sounds sinister when you're laughing with it. But uh, what 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 was the result of it? Now, the Uber chicken. By the way, one of the chickens called after me. <laughs> <laughs> he has my nickname now, but I'll put that aside. As it seems, because of breeding through all crossing all these lines, the Uber chicken or the, the Top Chicken has uh, created uh, metabolisms which provide him uh, certain illnesses which you have amongst the regular chickens. Mm -hmm. There's a survival technique in it too as well, like mm -hmm. in ancient times or still going on, when you're herd, uh, when you have uh, cattle, every year now and then they mix the, the the bull or the ram by with another uh, with another village across the mountain, so they have new blood, fresh blood, and, and so it's good to go mix. <laughs> go out there and breed. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Go multiply. <laughs> <laughs> but, but That's Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> Let's turn it up into the audience. Uh, yeah, That's a very good example. I think Bashevich Singer was one of the first true literary cosmopolitans of the 20th century. An exception for his time. saying there is a problem. Um, I think it's a phenomenon. Um, it's a phenomenon and if there is a problematic aspect to it, it's perhaps from my point of view as a, as a kind of, as a hybrid, as a mongrel, is that it is not well understood that I think perhaps we are slightly hung up, too hung up on notions like migrant. Um, and in New Zealand, for example, which is a very multicultural country, the same as Australia, um, the same as the rest of the New World, uh, they are too hung up on words still like biculturalism, the Maori and the Pakeha. 
the white European settlers in the Maori. And yet it's obviously a cosmopolitan society. So I think that is the problem that I see, that people are too hung up on now slightly passe notions of like migrant this or migrant that. And maybe we need to invent some new words because I, yeah. new species of us exist. <laughs> can I just, can I just mm -hmm. say something about, about migrant literature in, in general? Um, you know, I said I had a problem with it. I think the problem is, um, I mean, I don't mind being called a migrant writer, but because um, I don't mind labels. I think if you mind labels, it's because you don't believe you have other things to offer. And I think I, I want to be um, judged on my writing. And I, that's what I put emphasis on, whether people call me British or Dutch or Muslim or, you know, migrant writer. I don't mind labels. But migrant literature, um, the problem is that it might be um, it might be judged in a different manner than normal literature. That's the, em that's the emphasis I want to bring in. But I think it will never die. I think there will always be migrant literature. Not because the migrant experience will be so unique. It's because the migrant is someone which appeals to us because we are all migrants, whether we have color or not, whether we've traveled by airplane or not. I think there's an immigrant in everybody. We don't have roots. We always wonder. And why migrant literature is so appealing to us is because the universal themes which are portrayed in migrant literature, the basic one being the sense of belonging, is the universal theme of everybody, the basic universal theme of everybody. When we get born, we leave our mother, we leave the house. Our sense of belonging is our major universal theme. And it's, in, in the it's written in, in such magnitude of emotions in migrant literature, which will give it the same appeal. So I think even if we do become hybrids and even if we do become cosmopolitans, there will be a tendency for even those cosmopolitans to search for that particular and peculiar aspect of being that special migrant to really emphasize that heaviness of sense of belonging, which appeals to all of us. So that's what I'd like to see. Question over there, yeah? I 
I think um, things were complicated for me as a European um, by emigrating to New Zealand, which has elements of European culture but is very much not Europe um, in every possible way. Um, and uh, while I was living in New Zealand, I was sort of known there as a Bulgarian-born writer, Kapka Kasabova. Um, so I could be a European very easily in New Zealand. I could be a broad-spectrum European because New Zealand is so far away from Europe that whether you come from Eastern Europe, whether you come from Albania or France, it's sort of much of a muchness, you know, which is very nice when you're an East European uh, because an East European in Western Europe, even to this day, can be sort of looked down upon you know, go to Berlin, and those tensions are still there. So when I moved back to Europe five years ago, to, here, um, to Britain, um, I was suddenly a more complicated creature. You know, I was Bulgarian, but I wasn't coming from Bulgaria. I was coming from New Zealand, where I'd spent the last 12 years. So I was this kind of um, East European Antipodean, which is just confusing for everyone. Um, so occasionally I would introduce myself as being a New Zealander, and watch people's faces and there was there's always confusion when I say I'm from New Zealand because I think the British still kind of have this stereotype of New Zealanders and Australians as being sort of blonde surf chicks or something, <laughs> you know. Um, so I didn't look to them like a New Zealander. Um, so I started introducing myself again as a Bulgarian. Um, so again, this kind of Europeanness crept back in into my sense of, you know, the way I presented myself to the world and now I actually feel more Bulgarian than New Zealand, so I feel I have somehow moved back to my Europeanness, whether it's my European roots, and you know, yes, we are rootless like in the in the Petit Prince, um, but in a way, New Zealand has drifted away from my identity in a in a very um, sort of disturbing for me way because I quite like being a New Zealander, but <laughs> there you are. Um, yes, yes, I. I want to uh, thank everybody responsible for putting this on. <laughs> Our principal actors here, Our creators, here. workers. I, we haven't touched much on uh, what perhaps might be called the purely artistic or uh, vocational side of things, and uh, some of our greatest writers in uh, the Anglo-American language, Conrad, Nabokov, were people who came from elsewhere. I think that uh, Nabokov wrote in a couple of other languages before he got into English. <laughs> The other thing that really distresses me even more is that I, those two I came I, as I understand it in a more or less voluntary way. Nabokov might not accept that, but, but he's dead. Huh? <laughs> no, go. <laughs> But I, my God, we live in a staggeringly a misshapen world, and when I think of 
good so I think of people who are trying to sur survive to get enough to eat to avoid the bullets that happen to be flying around there and they that on the one, the one hand their desperation is what I think of I, my as migrants, my principal acquaintances, apart from my own case, have been uh, Algerians in, in, in France. I, but, uh, so much of a case of, uh, of, on the one hand, personal desperation, familial uh, desperation. <coughs> just, I, I, how do I get out of here? And sometimes there's a way, and sometimes. You, turns out to get killed along the way because he didn't find it. Well, that uh, kind of touches back on what we said about writing out of grief or out of mm -hmm. loss or uh, out of revenge. So, thank you for yeah, touching oh yeah, back that, on that. Uh, I, I thought, thought of that very much. When, when There's also the interest But the that. other side, the, the other part, the same story, is I kind of being the honey to a lot of flowers. Very easy to exploit. There's also the interesting thing about the artist, in a way, who, you know, the person who makes his living like through it, being an artist. I'd, I'd like to end at least my own contribution. I have no control over others, uh, although I'm trying to impose a little upon you here. I'd like to end on a no question of mission, really human mission. And man's ability to be a wolf to man. Mm -hmm. Anybody wants to comment on this? As I understand, sir, the gentleman says that writing or uh, doing art is, in your opinion, a strategy of survival. Is it that what you're trying to say? Is it a strategy to survival? Most of the migrants whom I okay. know are escaping from desperate uh, economic or military economic uh, situations. Some case, in many cases political like, as well, but that rapidly becomes military and your daily No, I think um, yeah. just to just to uh, comment on that, I think there is this tragedy for migrants, and many migrants write that. But I think we should also look at the, the good side. There's also, as I said, the tragedy and the comedy. It does become your strength. And um, I think one of the things you can say about many migrants is that they had this courage to move to another country. And um, uh, they had this courage to, to leave. You know, my, my dad left his village. He didn't even have an image of England because he didn't have a television. And he came to England and he had this image suddenly even of Pakistan on a television, you know, so it was quite weird. He was 19, he didn't know what he was going into. So, and a lot of these migrants have that. They are very courageous people, they have this enterprise mentality, and they take risks to start, to start anew. I think that's also something why, that's maybe the reason why we also pick up the pen. It's not just suffering. It, the suffering is, you know, we have to suffer. So even if the suffering's finished, we, we kind of go back to the past and suffer again. Because we have to write, we have to make money. But um, <laughs> um, there's also this, this happiness, there's this pleasure of being different, and then in that difference being needed. 
And in that difference being appealing to other people, because in your difference you are an explosion of something small which lives in everybody. So there's a good side to it. You know, one thing that I that, that, that's sort of dying to ask is how, and this is really not the political aspect, this is really sort of the, the, the art part of the story, um, is, um, you know, I, I think it's interesting how when I read migrant literature, often I feel like there are sentences in there where I, where I would say, I would be smacked for writing that sentence in composition class in high school, oh. right? And yet it's beautiful because, you know, there's something of language enrichment that comes in. Um, did you all feel that, that you contributing to the language that you're writing in? Um, with your mother tongue being being different? Yeah. Yeah. Because you all write, you write. Yeah. Well, well, you're different. I think you write in English. You write in your third language. In my third, my fourth language. Your fourth language. Yeah. And you're in your third language. Yeah. My fourth language. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, it's not just. Um, I don't want to take the floor again, but. Uh, it's not the language, it's not only the language, it's, it, there's differences in sensitivity. Mm -hmm. um, my, I'm a, I'm a Punj I have a Punjabi background, uh, raised as a Muslim, and um, there's a different way of speaking to elders. And uh, I've, I've been living in the Netherlands, and children, they negotiate with their elders, and they say no to their fathers, and I never could say no to my father. It's, there's sensitivities which you also put in that language. Um, so, and, you know the, the erotic novel I wrote? I wrote it in the Punjabi way. So, um, a woman's body would be called a flower, which blossomed. If you compare it to eroticism in the Dutch literature, it's very um, anatomical. And um, so, it's not just the um, difference in, in lyric or difference in rhetoric. It's you know, translating sensitivities or bringing, reintroducing sensitivities in a culture which is very forward and very, um, you know, Dutch people, they can be very, you know, forward and uh, brute and, and whatever. They can be very, in, in Belgium they say, gebekt. How do you translate that? Rough, rough spoken. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what we also do, I think, yeah, what we also do is introduce uh, different types of sensitivities and beauties mm -hmm. and uh, the celebra certain celebrations which we've forgotten in the West, the celebration of, let's say, martyrdom or the celebration of the hereafter, so it's topic-wise as well. Mm -hmm. yeah. Talking about migrant, uh, migrant literature, I, I wrote down, I think, shows us, not all the time, our weak spots, like, you know, Naima said earlier, we were all migrants in one, one, one upon a time. We were all migrants because according to Darwin, if you are Darwinist, when you go back 13,000 years back, then we were all living in Africa and we were all happy. But some people, some groups go, go further and they get civilized, they, they build cities. And then this exotic external person or creature comes inside and you don't want it. You don't know him or her. And things that you don't know about resemble fear because it's new, because it's going to disturb harmony. 
and by migrant literature, reading by my by reading migrant literature, you can pinpoint the weaknesses that you have, and you can sort of weapon yourself to it. And another word, identity. Whether you like it or not, identity, at least for me, is is a burden. If you really want to be full human and full alive, you, you, you should create a sort of a second soul, like identity, identity less, so you can be without boundaries, so you can be pure, without any mixed feelings or pre-prejudiced pre 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 mm -hmm. I think flag, uh, identity, or religion, even though they are the most holy and sanctuary things, in, 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 in origin they are a burden, because they will always narrow your mind and your thoughts, because you, you have this, you occupy this thing, which is called, I'm from this country, I believe in this religion, and I am uh, practicing this tradition, which means all the other things surrounding you, you exclude them. That's, that's the burden of identity. And there's nothing wrong to have an identity, it's good, but the second soul needed is to be open and not uh, judge the other things that surround you, because you can learn so much of it and be a better person. Mustafa, you are called after Mustafa Kemal at the Turk. Yes. But I don't think he would be very proud of you <laughs> for saying all these things, all these sort of internationalist things. But, I mean, I totally agree with you. I think we should abolish borders straight away. All borders should be abolished. But, you know, you say the second soul should be completely pure, and part of me totally agrees with you, uh, because I am totally anti-patriotism. Mm -hmm. I am anti-nationalism. Uh, another part of me thinks, as soon as you leave your village, you are tainted in a way, yes, exactly. because that movement through space yes. and culture and time already makes you, um, you know, gives you color and in, it gives you different sorts of belongings. And also competition. There's a new guy in town. He's gonna yeah. In fact, who was it that said there's only two stories in literature? Uh, you leave town and go on a journey, mm -hmm. one, and two, a stranger comes to town. <laughs> Just two stories in all of literature. But most literature is about love. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not successful if you can. Can we put them off now? <laughs> quick question for you. And then that's the last question.
think you need to move your book to another section. <laughs> <laughs> Just to get on, Salman Rushdie wrote, wrote an essay called Commonwealth Literature Doesn't Exist. And there was this whole phenomenon of, you know, grouping literature written in English um, by this whole body of the Commonwealth into two parts. You had English literature that was made by English people, you know, white English people, and you had Commonwealth literature written by people from Nigeria or from um, India or Pakistan in the English language. And he, com he, he raised some very interesting points there. He said, why do we do that? It's to actually ghettoize different types of literature because you don't want it to be you know, seen as English literature. So English literature is hierarchy. That's, that's on the top of the hierarchy. Then you have Commonwealth literature. And you have to kind of perceive it differently. And I think that's why these things happen, that they just get grouped into, well, that's not poetry. It's something from Mexico, so it's post-colonial. How to deal with that? I think talent will beat everything. Just keep writing. Keep writing. Keep writing. Can I just quickly disagree yeah. with you? Um, <laughs> when I finish, when I finish, when I published my first novel, I quickly wrote a second novel. My first novel was about um, my first book was about migrants and identity. My second book was about Muslim women's sexuality, and my third book was was a love story in the Mughal courts. Akbar, you know, the people might know. Um, Emperor Akbar had a son called Salim who fell in love with the courtesan of Akbar. And I, I wrote a, a, a short novel, and my public, a short synopsis of a novel. My publisher said, No, nobody's going to read that. Write again about identity and about rootlessness, <laughs> which I did. And that's a nice book. It became a nice book. So probably he saw that need in me. But how to do it? Just keep writing and beat them by talent and beat them with your quality of work. <laughs> and these labels don't feel too bad about it. If they want to stick a label, the label can also be unstuck to be taken off. A couple even disagree. Disagree. Yeah, I, yeah. Good, Before I forget what I disagree with. Um, just wanted to say thank you for, for bringing up Salman Rushdie because I actually think that he was at the helm of a kind of turning. It was a, a, the tide turned with Salman Rushdie. Um, you know, it is now actually, there, if there is any discrimination against Commonwealth writers, it's a positive discrimination. It's now fashionable to be an Indian or Pakistani writing in English. In fact, you're at an advantage as opposed to being a white English writer. I mean, what's so original about that? So actually, <laughs> Salman Rushdie, I think, helped turn the tide for so-called Commonwealth um, literature, or what, you know, uh, people with exotic names writing in English or in other big European languages. Um, so I just wanted to kind of put a, a positive spin on, on what you said. Um, so it depends on what sort of, uh, you know, um, what heap your book goes on to, you know. Um, South so American literature. Well, you know, you know I mean? We embrace it, but they are, we happen to be pigeonholed as migrants. Yeah. I mean, my class group, you know, it's very comfortable to be able to choose where it's mm. like, well, from something great about 